Our guest today is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland, College Park, with a joint appointment in the University of Maryland Institute for Advanced Computer Studies. She is also affiliated with the University of Maryland Human-Computer Interaction Laboratory. Her research focuses on developing interactive data-intensive systems that can aid analysts in performing complex data exploration and analysis. Her current research is anchored in the field of databases, but utilizes research methodology and techniques from human-computer interaction and visualization to integrate data processing with interactive interfaces. She was named one of the 35 innovators under 35 by the MIT Technology Review in 2020. From our nation's capital, I'm Melanie Lafine, and this is Tech Rebalanced. Welcome to Dr. Leilani Battle. Hi, Leilani. Welcome to Tech Rebalanced. Thank you. Happy to participate. We're happy to have you here. So let's start off with um, you telling us about your area of research as you are a professor of computer science at University of Maryland. Yeah, so the broad umbrella I fall under is data science, but what I do specifically is I my research aims to help other researchers and help developers design tools for data science that are more human-centered. Um, and a lot of that work is focused on evaluation, basically helping researchers and developers think more about what real people will actually do with the tools that we build and how these interactions between people and data science tools can affect the overall performance of the tools themselves and of the people. That's It sounds like that people would really love to have that around because probably data scientists don't really think about how their data products affect people that much. They're thinking more of the back end and building the model. Yeah, I think... So to be fair, a lot of data science companies, they, they want to help other businesses improve their bottom line, which makes sense. And lots of times in business, you want to focus on metrics. And in computer science, you know, we run programs, we want to see how fast they run, how efficiently they run. In the case of data science, you want to be able to process and analyze your data efficiently. But you know, as you said, people don't necessarily think about what that means on a day-to-day basis for analysts and actual people who are interacting with these systems. So I, I focus more on that. So my, my research involves user studies with you know, a wide variety of people who interact with these systems. So of course, analysts and developers out in the field who are interacting with these systems as part of their jobs, but also people who are learning data science and will eventually go into the workforce as well. So students. And more recently, we've just been focusing more on on learners, like data science learners. Well, there's certainly no shortage of that these days, especially with all the boot camps and things like that and all like the online media. But I'm sure there's a big difference between, you know, throwing a course out there and not really thinking about how the users or the students are interacting with it you know, versus, you know, a well-thought-out course, thinking about what the actual goals are for the user. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think it has huge implications for education. For example, lots of times in computer science, we we talk a lot about hackers and coders and code monkeys and all sorts of things like that. But if we focus too much on, oh yeah, the whole point is to code stuff and not enough on, you know, who are we coding for and why are we developing the software for them, Um, we just run into this scenario where we build a lot of hammers and don't think a lot about the nails. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. So given, um, you know, your work done in this field, what has been your favorite project so far? 
So it's hard for me to single out a specific project. I will say a project that I thought was really influential for me was not quite my first project as a PhD student, but kind of the second project. I was building this system called Forecash. The name Forecash is a play on words like forecasting and caching. So the idea was as people are casually browsing, say panning or zooming through large arrays of data, let's say satellite imagery data, that's probably the most common one that people can think of. So say you're panning and zooming through large swaths of satellite imagery. If we can predict where in that data someone wants to pan and someone wants to zoom next, then we can do really cool things. For example, provision for those interactions at a systems level. So to us, it just looks like an image in the interface that we're interacting with, but under the hood, it, that's really tons of data that needs to be fetched and processed to show you that image in the first place. So if we can predict where you're gonna interact um, with the interface, we can predict what data that corresponds to and fetch it and process it ahead of time. And then the system performance improves, but it's because we paid attention to the user. And uh, so I had done database research as a student for a number of years by that point, but that was really when I realized that when you pay attention to people and what they're doing and how they behave and how they analyze data, you can actually make the systems um, to support them even more efficient. So I thought that that really kicked off kind of this entire research trajectory that I'm on now. That's so cool that you had that turning point like relatively early in your career as well that, you know, you didn't realize it later on when you were a professor, you know, you could have really shaped your career from when you were a student and you saw like how important it was to you to see how the users are do, doing things and thinking and interacting. So I know, I know for me personally, I think it took a lot longer to realize what I wanted out of a career. So that's, that's pretty lucky um, and pretty awesome. Oh yeah, absolutely. I would say it was, it was lucky. Luck, luck's a factor in everything. <laughs> it really Whatever is. It's important it really too, is. but. Um, okay. So now of course the question that everyone would love to happen in reality, but if you had an extra half a million dollars in funding, how would you use it either to expand your current lab or start new projects? You had a half a million dollars to use in any way in, in your research. How would you go about using it? So this question is particularly interesting to me because I am actually writing a proposal right now where I'm, I hope I could get a half a million dollars from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I hope it helped with the planning a little bit. Yeah, certainly makes this question feel less foreign anyway. Um, the, the thing I realized in the research that I've been doing, especially with the project I mentioned with Forecash, is that it requires this interplay between these different research areas so human-computer interaction, understanding and learning more about how people interact with computers, visualization, so how through the human eye and human perception do we understand large and complex data, and then databases or data management. So how can we organize and process data as efficiently as possible? Um, but what I realized with this research is that these represent different communities within data science. And these communities don't necessarily talk to each other or interact effectively. The there's basically no strong communication lines between them. And as a grad student, I sort of struggled to bridge these different areas because of this lack of communication infrastructure. So something I would love to do with additional funding would be to make these communication channels more robust and more explicit. So for example, if I could build a platform, let's say an evaluation platform and encourage these different communities to talk to each other about, you know, what does it mean to build an effective tool for data science from the database perspective, from the human computer interaction perspective, from the visualization perspective. That way together we can come up with a set of challenges that we believe representative of the kinds of tools that we, we want people to be able to have and then work backwards to say, okay, if, if these are our goals, 
and this is what the metric of success looks like, which is what evaluation gives us, then how do we build tools to meet those needs? And how do each of our communities contribute to that? So I think having a platform that we can all communicate through is really important. And one thing I've been focusing on recently is this notion of benchmarking. So this idea that if you could basically run a program connected to a tool that you've built and then get evaluation metrics that tell you something useful about how well your tool is doing, in, in the course of building benchmarks, different communities can reach a consensus on what success looks like. Because you have to you have to build it into that benchmark and to build it into that program, and someone has to actually be able to run it. So it's not just you know saying words like I say words to so and so, and they say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. It's like I run this program, it spits out these numbers, and these numbers actually mean something to both of us. <laughs> so forcing people to concretize the ideas um, and the challenges, and build up a platform that we can actually all use together. That's something that is really important to me. This is this is a rather lofty goal. I can't do this tomorrow, uh, but this is something I want to start working towards with more funding. Yeah, it's almost funny how much communication ends up being key in computer science, I think. Um, it's definitely something that I feel a lot of people who go into computer science may not see as a skill set that's inherent to the field. But the more and more I talk with people and, you know, do this podcast, I communication always comes up. So it's interesting that it comes up with you as well and wanting to build a platform to, you know, facilitate and better enhance communication between groups. So it's definitely something super applicable, I think, to basically everywhere. Uh, because as you said, I think that's a problem everywhere in the data science world and maybe even computer science world is that people are pretty siloed in what they do. So I think that that's such a great uh, aspiration you have and what you would do with your money is very, very good. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned um, that before that, you know, people and we had talked about people don't really think about human computer interaction necessarily as data scientists or developers. Um, so what are some aspects of human computer interaction that everyone should know about? Well, one thing that I would like to emphasize is that without human computer interaction, I mean, computer science as a field wouldn't really exist because the point of human computer interaction is to make it so that anyone can use computing to achieve their own goals and address their own needs. But the only way we can do that is by interacting with computers. If you couldn't interact with them, like you couldn't type something in through a keyboard, if you couldn't click anything with a mouse, if you couldn't touch anything on a screen, then you, you couldn't actually really, or if you couldn't speak commands to a device, you if you couldn't interact with any way than a computer, it would be useless. So without human-computer interaction, I hope you know everyone realizes that computer science just wouldn't even exist as a field. So it's it's a really, really important facet of computer science that I think a lot of us take for granted. I think the other thing too, though there are a lot of conversations going on about this now, which I'm very happy to see. But another thing that I think is really important to talk about as well is that I. I and a lot of people believe it can be very dangerous to let software and algorithms make important uh, societal or even business and organizational decisions without human guidance and not without human intervention. And in data science, this can seem um, kind of weird because you think, oh, well, in data science, we're making data-driven decisions, right? So why on earth do we need individual people doing anything? Well, the data that these systems interpret and make decisions based off of can in themselves be biased. So if you take biased data and you feed it through a system, there's a good chance that that system, unless it knows what biases to look for and how to correct for those biases, it will perpetuate them. So data science is not a panacea and without a human understanding of the limitations of a data set, 
it's not clear to me how a system or a program could could do anything about it either. And also, it's one thing to come up with an algorithm in a sort of intellectual vacuum, but it's another to take that algorithm or that piece of AI or that machine learning model and then unleash it on the world where it's making decisions uh, on real people's lives. <laughs> like whether or not someone goes to jail or whether or not someone actually gets a service in their area or whether or not someone is a human or a gorilla. Like all of those decisions and all of those actions performed by those systems affect real people. So if you subtract the human from the computing equation, you just end up in this situation where you could be hurting a lot of people and thinking that what you're doing is objective when, um, I mean, humans are subjective. <laughs> We're not 100% rational. Um, so the idea that we can build these systems that are not affected at all by our own subjectivity I think is short-sighted and human-computer interaction kind of helps us keep sight of that. Yeah, I definitely think you bring up a very good point because we've seen what you have said, especially about um, data science making decisions for us that is inherently faulty and it hurts people quite a bit. I mean, there's tons of use cases where that's happened, where people made basically an assumption it got swept into the model or the data wasn't the data came in biased essentially and it was swept into the model and it was used to make a decision that was less than optimal for you know a specific group of people for example so I think what you said is incredibly important and I'm really happy to hear that you know you mentioned it as one of the most important parts that people should know about about HCI um so switching gears a little bit how did you get to the position you're in today? Did you always want to be a professor? <laughs> well, depending on which friends of mine you talk to, apparently I have claimed that I wanted to be a professor for a long time. But from my perspective, I, I see my path to professorship as sort of being this series of awkward stumblings in what I thought to be random directions for a while. I usually start this story, you know, not at the college level and not at grad school, but as far back as while I was in grade school, because I think it's really important to make clear that I, I actually wasn't even totally sure I would be doing computer science in college. In high school, I was super into, you know, drawing, um, reading books. I loved video games and I, I loved an idea, the idea of doing something creative, like helping to develop games, maybe doing artwork for games. That was probably the thing that I was obsessed with in, in high school, for example. But I realized then that it might be kind of hard as an artist to make a living. So I was thinking, you know, what could I do that could still allow me to do these things I wanted to do, but not necessarily purely art. And that's when I started thinking more about computing, but not necessarily computer science. For example, computer engineering, I thought was interesting. Electrical engineering. My dad had sort of a background related to electrical engineering when he was in the Navy. So I was more interested in that. And then growing up, we almost always had a computer in the house. So I, I definitely thank my parents for that, having access. Because then I, I mean, I didn't know how to program, but I was more comfortable with computers in the first place from a young age. And it, honestly, I didn't even pursue computer science until I got a letter in the mail from the University of Washington telling me that I was admitted to the university, but also because I had expressed interest in computer science, they're offering me direct admission into the computer science and engineering program. So it wasn't until computer science chose me that I decided to give computer science a try. So, you know, not all computer science professors in the world decided from like the day where they were born that they were going to be programmers. <laughs> not by a long shot. And then in college, I 
tried a bunch of <laughs> random things. Um, I'd done some internships, both research internships and an industry internship. And probably about halfway through college, I realized what it meant to go out into the workforce as sort of a junior programmer. And for me personally, I was just wondering if that I would find a job like that fulfilling, if that's really what I wanted to do. And I wanted more time to kind of explore how I could have a positive impact through computer science, but not necessarily by immediately going and working for, you know, Microsoft or Google or something. Also, I'm just gonna put it out there. I failed like all of my Google internship interviews, but I think I turned out okay. So that kind of makes me wonder. I certainly would say so. I certainly (laughs) would say that you turned out just fine. That made me wonder kind of what is industry prioritizing? You know, I think I'm pretty smart and pretty capable, yet here I am, you know, not getting offers from these companies that are supposed to be like the hot companies to work for. That paired with, you know, I loved the research experiences that I had as an undergrad. Um, The graduate students I interacted with seemed like they were, you know, doing things that they found meaningful and enjoying working on hard problems and coming up with new ideas. So I figured at the very least, I would learn a lot in grad school. Um, And in the best case, it could open some more doors to give me options on what I could do next. And then in grad school, man, grad school (laughs) was the hardest thing I did in my life, probably the hardest thing. I mean, I've done a lot of hard things too, so far as a professor, but grad school was just really, it does sort of feel like a trial by fire. Very rewarding, but just very hard. But once I got the hang of it, sort of how to do research and how to publish papers and stuff, Um, And I realized talking to more faculty that in being a professor, I could be my own boss. I could come up with my own research ideas and I could mentor students and give back to the community in a way that I felt like I, I couldn't do quite the same way in industry. That's like in my last two years of grad school, that's when I started thinking more seriously about professorship. So it was only in the last few years, I would say, that I was really serious about taking on this position. And for many years before that, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. <laughs> well, thank you for being so forthcoming with your experiences. I know a lot of people can, you know, myself included, can echo and really like resonate with what you know, <laughs> some of your experiences and some of your thoughts there. And I, I think there's something to be said for sometimes it feels like people always expect you to know exactly what the next steps are. Like, I'm going to be a professor. I'm like 10 years old. I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And that's going to add up to me being a professor. But it's never as clear as that to really anyone. You know, it really is being at the right place at the right time, being introduced to certain things and opportunities, just like you mentioned with computer science. You know, you weren't, wasn't really at the front of your mind until someone offered it to you and you're like, sure. (laughs) So I think that Um, I really appreciate, and I'm sure many of our listeners appreciate your story and how you came to be the phenomenal person you are today. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I I just wanted to add, I think it's important to hear about all these different paths to academia and computer science because it, so for example, my, my undergraduate research advisor at the University of Washington, Magda Balazinska, who's now the director of the Paul Allen School for Computer Science and Engineering. Seeing her kick serious butt and get tenure at UW, I think was a huge influence for me and kind of helping me imagine my self being in academia. And then the graduate student that I worked with, Njira Kasinova, um, she was awesome as well. And sort of, and so seeing them. Um, and then interacting with the the different students, including women and other students of color at MIT, was highly influential for me as well. Knowing that I would have a community to to be a part of, just it played a big role. So if I can, I, if I can help others out in that way by sharing my story, I'm happy to do that. 
Yeah, I definitely know that that's very helpful. Um, I know at least for myself to hear. Um, so how do you stay on top of new advances in your area? Well, <laughs> so that um, is tough, I think, for everyone. So probably the, the, the main way I do it, because I'm a really social person and I love talking to and interacting with people, the main way I do it is through my network, through talking with people. So I, I kind of got in the habit through grad school of talking about my research ideas and getting feedback on them from friends. And then kind of as we all progressed um, in grad school and academia, a lot of us became professors and researchers out in industry. And as I got a little bit older, I got more comfortable talking with more senior people as well. So I think that's the main way that I stay on top of new advances because then I can hear other people's perspectives. And lots of times when people are more familiar with what I do, they'll send things my way saying, hey, I think this sounds relevant to you. You might want to check it out. Um, So in academia specifically, there's this big component that we call amorphously service, but part of service work for us means giving back to the community by reviewing each other's papers. So peer review for conferences and journals, Um, And lots of times, because I am the world's leading expert in, you know, evaluating large-scale data science systems from a human-centered perspective, so I have these crisscrosses of of communities, I tend to read a lot of the papers and review a lot of the papers in that intersection. Um, So people will reach out to me to do that. So lots of times when papers get published, uh, for a bunch of them, I've already read them because I had to review them. <laughs> Probably for the rest of what I know about that's not covered by my network and not covered through my service work would be just making a habit of periodically reviewing the proceedings of the top conferences that I follow for my research areas. Uh, basically building a, a habit of reviewing papers is helpful. I'm not sure how I would give advice outside of academia, but within academia, that's sort of how I stay on top of things. I think, in, I guess in general, networking is is really helpful, but I see it more as talking to people I know and getting access to the people that they know kind of indirectly to kind of broaden my own perspective. Yeah, I definitely think no matter where you are, networking is key. And again, it comes down to what we were saying earlier, communication, right? Getting to know people, breaking down, you know, the walls that might exist between us. Although it sounds like you have um, a pretty great way of staying connected since you have to review a bunch of papers, you end up reviewing a bunch of papers. So at least that gives you kind of the first foot in the door to see what's new in your area. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives me an opportunity to be supportive of other people's work too. I I'm definitely aware that in academia it can be sometimes it can be a toxic environment and sometimes it can be a harsh environment. And so just being able to be in the room and stand up for other people as well, I think is I think a great opportunity for me in this position. And a great opportunity for those you're helping as well, might I add. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So kind of a less fun question to talk about. But what are some difficult situations that you've had to overcome in your career and how did you overcome them? That is a great question. I think, so I kind of see problems as being in um, different categories. Some are hard in general in academia and STEM and from like a technical perspective, I guess. And then there are the other more societal ones. Maybe I'll start with, um, so I definitely had to deal with things that a lot of, you know, students, undergrad and graduate students deal with. So there were courses that I struggled with when I was a PhD student. I struggled getting academic papers published for honestly most of my PhD. (laughs) Um, That definitely did not come easily to me. And um, for those kinds of things, I think it really helped being a social person because 
I, so because I talked to so many people, I could quickly figure out, you know, am I facing a problem that's unique to me or my situation, or am I dealing with something that's kind of a larger problem that lots of other people face as well? So the classes, you know, being able to talk to fellow students in the class made me realize, okay, yeah, this is a particularly hard assignment or particularly hard problem or a particularly hard topic. And I, we could quickly swap notes and figure out what things tended to be effective. For example, I had a really hard time in the theory classes, the computer science theory classes, but I figured out that for, for those classes, TA office hours are extremely helpful. <laughs> And study groups are, for me, were basically essential for all of those classes. So once I figured that out, that was a lot better for me. Um, same in grad school. It was true for both. And then with getting papers published, for a long time, it felt like it was just me. And there was a point, probably maybe halfway through, where I was wondering if I should even be in grad school because I just couldn't get things published. And talking to other students helped, but I think talking to people outside of my bubble. So I went to the writing center. I took an extra writing class while I was at MIT. I talked to lots of other people about writing and communication. Um, and I think it was at that point that I realized that communication was way more important in academia than I had originally realized. It's not just about coming up with cool ideas and building stuff. It's also about being able to communicate that effectively to other people that aren't me and aren't my advisor. So when I realized that and took it a lot more seriously, I think that was a turning point for me in my PhD and um, that helped a lot. But if I had just kind of stayed in my own little bubble and didn't talk to anyone, even just anyone outside of my friend group of other grad students, then I, I don't know if I would have stayed in grad school because I wouldn't have realized this kind of more outside perspective on, on writing and communication. And then I've, I mean, I've dealt with other stuff as well that are more like, you know, what is it like to be uh, a person of color in academia and in STEM and what's it like to be uh, a woman in academia and STEM? Like I was pretty much quote unquote, the only black student in the class for a very long time. <laughs> this probably goes as far back as even before high school, maybe even, I can't remember this far back, but probably even as far back as like junior high, middle school. So I had to deal with that for a long time. So then by the time I got to college and by the time I got to grad school, I sort of had gotten used to navigating in those spaces. I think the more, the more experience one has navigating those, those spaces, the easier it is. So having that really early, I mean, it was unfortunate for me when I was really young, but it was very useful a lot later. <laughs> but I don't know, I had these weird situations too, where I remember being on a project team in undergrad where there was a team of like half men, half women. So four and then four people total. So two and two. I, I noticed that the me and the other female student had worked really hard on this project. And then the other two had actually not done anything. Uh, and then one of the teammates, one of the male teammates had the audacity to, to complain about the poor quality of the project that we produced, even though only half, we were basically operating at 50% capacity. <laughs> and was and then me and the female student were blamed for that. I remember that is like a, a thing that I remember pretty vividly from undergrad of um, like blatant sexism basically. And I thought that that person who was complaining was a friend, like I had considered us friends and then that happened and I was thinking, what the heck is going on here? This has nothing to do with <laughs> anything objective or fair. And I've, I mean, I've run into other situations too where um, I want to advocate for myself because in academia, they tell you, oh, you're going to get asked to do all these things because you're a woman and a person of color. Uh, and I would go to mentors, uh, people who I was looking to for advice and ask them saying, you know, I want to say no to this. Should I say no? 
And they would tell me, someone would tell me, I think you should do it. I don't think you can say no. And I was thinking, what in the world? <laughs> so that made me realize, oh, I'm really glad I have more than one mentor because what if they don't know how to fight this fight and I'm relying on, on just them? Then I, I may not have the, all the right people advocating for me at all times. So then just realizing, I guess, that having a greater awareness helps a lot having kind of more than one person to rely on and for different things helps a lot and definitely do not try to face those things by yourself. And if, if I know, I guess knowing what I know and experiencing what I've experienced, if something were to happen to me in the future, the last thing I would do is keep it to myself. <laughs> I wouldn't go advertising it all over the world or anything, but I would, you know, talk to people that I trust definitely more than one person um, and get advice and get support because for all of the things that I've had to deal with, I definitely would not, I would not keep it to myself because I think that's toxic for the individual who has to deal with the situation. Um, and I think it's the community's responsibility to support members of the community. So if we, if we don't, reach out to each other, then we're sort of feeling everybody. I absolutely love that notion of what you just said um, with the community being responsible for its members. And I love so much that you've been able to get help outside of yourself. You know, you weren't thinking this is my problem. I have to deal with it. You were looking for outside perspectives and a lot of the situations that you had difficulty with. And um, I think it's something again, within tech, that's kind of undervalued in a lot of ways where I think a lot of it is you are kind of get, kind of get the feeling that you're on your own out there when you're really not you know you're right it's absolutely a community and the community needs like no one built all of tech not one single person right it's a community and we all do so much better working together so why does that not extend to difficulties so you know and I, I have to say when you were telling your story about your, your teammate who, you know, talked about the poor quality of your work, that's like the exact example of what you should not do, I think. If you have an issue with someone's work, you should talk to them proactively and, you know, constructively about how to make it better. So I was actually cringing a little bit when you were saying that because it's just so against what I think so many people believe and what's necessary in that kind of situation. So, yeah, I think a lot of your your points here were were are again res going to be are resonating with not myself but with a lot of people who work in tech academia and otherwise so with all of that uh you know through through the difficult times and even the day-to-day -day and like you know the good times how do you stay motivated in your career that's a great question so in in research and academia failures happen all the time. I'm sure this is true for tech as a whole as well. Like failure, failure is sort of the default in the steady state. And successes, honestly, can be kind of few and far between. So understanding how to stay motivated is a really important part of this job, I would say. For me, kind of the most important thing that I realized is that in research and in academic publishing, they're both long processes and failure is an integral part of those processes. People might see academic publishing as, oh, you know, you do the research project, you write the paper, then you submit it, gets published and you're done. Um, but within that pipeline are all these iterative loops where, you know, in, in doing the research, it may not go as we had originally planned. So then we have to pivot, try alternatives, Maybe our original idea, idea really wouldn't work. So then we have to uh, backtrack or just abandon the idea and try something else. With publishing, it's not about us writing it down. It's about us communicating what we found to other people and figuring out you know, what pieces of the work that we did are important to carry forward in the larger body of knowledge. So it's really this back and forth between us and the rest of the community about what's important and what should be shared. And, and that is just a complicated process and it's very, very difficult to get that right. 
um, out of the gates, basically on, on a first draft or first try. So without, I mean, it just seems sort of impossible to assume that what, what I write down is going to immediately resonate with someone else. So um, with, without recognizing that, I think, for example, uh, like a student or someone else inter interacting with academia or interacting with research might take failure as I'm a failure and not see it as, no, no, we're do you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> no failure means no success because <laughs> it means you're not participating in the process if you aren't willing to risk failure. So I think realizing that was like the most important thing. And then um, other thing that helps me stay motivated actually is getting feedback from my from peers and from colleagues before I submit anything. Um, because I, I like talking to them and they have great ideas and they know this process. Even as even if I know the process, other I can rely on other people to kind of help me get feedback as part of that process. Um, before I used to be really scared of critical feedback, even from um, people I was close to and would sort of avoid talk to them about stuff because I didn't want them to think I was dumb. But after a while I realized if I get their ideas early, if I get them now, I can use that and turn around and improve what I'm working on before I ever submit it to like academic conference or journal or something. And that I could actually get better results that way rather than not telling anybody, writing something up and then getting rejections from strangers. So then I kind of shifted my perspective now and I'm like, okay, well, if I talk to everyone I know and get them to give me their feedback on what I'm doing and what I'm writing, then, I mean, because I know them and they know me, um, they're more inclined to give me feedback in a, in a friendlier way than say random strangers. And I value their opinion. I like, I know how awesome they are. So then if they tell me that they really, they think what I'm working on is really cool, that's a huge boost to me. So switching to getting, getting feedback is like a, a thing I should seek out regularly rather than a thing I have to put up with, I think changed things a lot. I think it's also good to have perspective, um, you know, especially in a time like now, research isn't everything. Tech even isn't everything, you know, there's, I have a life outside of my work and it doesn't always involve computing. <laughs> so I think taking care of myself and making sure I maintain my hobbies and talk to my family and friends and stay connected with people that I care about, um, not in a reactive way, like, oh, when I need help and I need to feel better, but also like in a proactive way really helps me because then, you know, when I'm done with work, I'm done with work. I put it, I put it down and I go do other things and remind myself that, you know, I'm a whole person with whole life and my job is not hundred percent of that. And that, I think that helps to stay motivated because then when I get up and get out of bed, it's not just to do my job. It's to do all the other things in my life as well. And then of course, you know, um, I think it's good to keep sight of, the successes when they do happen, yes, they're few and far between, but when they do happen, I would just play them on repeat, like, like my favorite song over and over and over to remind myself that successes happen, that I can get some wins and that they're awesome and just not to forget them, <laughs> big or small. If it's, it could be as small as just a thank you from a student because uh, they enjoyed my class. Uh, or as big as like winning an award or something. I keep track of all of them and I've been keeping track of them since grad school. And then, you know, the longer my career goes, then I will hopefully have more and more wins to contribute to that pile that I can revisit to remind myself that good things happen. <laughs> yeah, and one of your good things is that you've been named one of the MIT Technologies 35 under 35, which is incredibly impressive. So what is that Thank like you. and how does that impact your work? Ah, uh, <laughs> well, I never thought I would win something like the Innovators Under 35. Um, that has been a huge honor. And I sort of, I sort of see it as the community saying, 
you know, Leilani, thank you for doing the work that you do, which is really, which is really great. Um, Cause it can, it can be hard doing research in different communities where lots of times they might only see just one side or one part of what you do and may not necessarily appreciate all of it. So to know that there are people out there kind of looking at all these different angles and kind of seeing these connections that I'm trying to make and then resonating with that and wanting to support that, I think is, is really awesome. And one thing I'm really happy about is um, hopefully this award will bring more visibility to this intersection that I'm working in. Cause I'm definitely not the only person doing it. So I'm, ho I'm hoping that it will uplift everyone doing this work and that we can um, make more of a difference because. I sincerely hope that happens as well because the work you're doing is so important. And I think a lot of people aren't thinking the way that you do and they really need to be to have a more complete solution to whatever the the tech problem is that they're trying to solve, you know, always keep users in mind. Um, so very last question, and it is a more difficult one, but last month, the Harvard Business Review published an article about academia not exactly being a safe haven for conversations about race and racism. So what can we do to make academia a safer place for discussions about racism? So I think in general, not just in academia, discussing race and racism is hard, I think, a lot because of the mindsets of the, the people participating in the conversations. It's the way that we're acting and reacting to what other people are saying and doing that makes it hard to have those conversations. So what I would suggest are related to that. So the, the first thing I would recommend um, is to distinguish between what is a racist act and versus a racist identity. So doing something that's racist versus being a racist, because they're not at all the same thing. One thing that worries me is, at least from what I've seen, a lot of people do not like being told that some action or some behavior of theirs maybe or is racist because to them they see that as an attack on their character and of that person calling them a racist and i think that's those are two completely different things so that's that i would say is the first thing and and honestly i would say you know because white people are the majority racial group in the united states there's a lot of work there that i think white people need to do around this but is definitely not limited to white people. I think this also can be perpetuated across different races that are non-white as well. But there, I think, is a huge responsibility specifically for white people to, to grapple with this. Probably the second thing I would say is that we, we really need to acknowledge that there is a system of racism and discrimination in the United States. And this isn't, you know, a recent thing. This is actually been true since the founding of the country and, and contributed to the founding of this country. I think that that is an important thing to acknowledge. And then on top of that, kind of the last thing that built on top of that is that this system is sustained because we have not only people who commit racist acts, but also a majority of people who are willing to, who are not willing to speak up and take action against these acts. So it's not just people committing racist acts who might, who might be in the minority. I mean, I personally don't have like enough data to say definitively that, but the thing that matters most isn't the acts, the actions that are happening, but that people can get away with it. That there is no concerted response to address it and make sure it doesn't happen again. That's the thing that really matters, the inaction. Because the system only works when most people are unwilling to take decisive action against racist, racist acts, like racism and discrimination in general. So we have to acknowledge that our individual actions and our individual inaction matters.
and it contributes to the system, whether we want it to or not. So if we don't act, we're complicit in maintaining the system as it is. So those, those are the three things. I would say distinguishing between racist acts and racist identities, um, acknowledging that there's a system of racism and discrimination in the US, and also acknowledging that in order for that system to be maintained, you don't just need people committing racist acts, you also need people who are going to let them get away with it. I think if we can shift our mindsets to acknowledge these things and be open to the fact that we may be, our actions may make us complicit in the maintaining of the system. So not necessarily us as people, but our actions, then I think it's a lot easier to have these kinds of discussions. That's an amazing answer to a very difficult question. Thank you. Um, and the, what I pre- especially appreciate is there's a call to action there, right? It's it's not just here's my thoughts, but here's actually something that we can do and be proactive about. So that's, thank you again for your insights there. And throughout the entire conversation that we've had, thank you again so much for your time and your thoughts during this interview. And we really appreciate you being on Tech Rebalanced. I mean, thank you for having me. This was a, a wonderful experience and opportunity. Interested in learning more? Email us at team at techrebalance.org or visit us at techrebalance.org and techrebalanced on Patreon.